It's an honor and a privilege for us to be here tonight. And just so I can get a little bit of an idea about you, how many of you have ever heard me speak before? Oh, most of you. Okay, so I don't have to go and fill in a lot of background. But the Lord has been blessing our family and many others in Colombia, South America, and in other countries. And the Spanish-speaking world never had a great awakening or even much of a reformation like the English-speaking world. In fact, there, there wasn't much in the line of even Bible distribution until after World War II. There was, however, a very excellent translation of the Bible done by a man named Casioro de Reina, published in 1569. 3,000 copies were printed in Amsterdam. They attempted to smuggle some of them into Spain. The Inquisition reacted not only did they burn the Bibles, but they burned anyone that was found having a Bible. And only a half a dozen, or maybe slightly more, copies of this Bible ever survived. But years ago, I was translating some books into Spanish. I'd been brought up in a Bible translator base. My, my dad was in charge of 42 Bible translations into Indian dialects in Colombia and Panama, and I got to go with him. And now as I travel in ministry in Colombia and elsewhere, my traveling companion is my son Dylan, who is here. And my wife sometimes goes too. But as I was trying to translate some deeper books into Spanish, like our friend George Warnock's Feast of Tabernacles and other books like that, the translations didn't line up. The translations that were available in Spanish didn't even come close. George, of course, was using the King James, and there was supposed to be a a Spanish Bible that was more or less like the King James. It was the 1909 revision of the Reina Valera Bible. But they had messed with it. And it went through a revision by someone who didn't believe in free will. So they went through the Bible and fixed up anything that had to do with uh, if you made a choice that it would affect your eternal future or anyone else's future, and more or less took that out. They only had to mess with about 2,000 verses in order to do that. Yeah. <laughs> then it went through the age of Romanticism, and they put so many flowery tongue twisters in it that even a native Spanish speaker would have to practice for a while before they dared get up 
in public and read a given Bible passage. And then the Bible Society, in the middle of the Catholic charismatic renewal, got taken over by homosexual Catholic priests who edited the Bible so that you didn't need the Holy Spirit in order to interpret their Bible. So that words that they didn't care for, like repentance or judgment or holiness, they just evaporated most of that. Then they quit printing the 1909 revision. They had a 1960 revision, kind of like the RSV in English. I don't know if you've ever used an RSV. Um, When the famous or infamous Greek scholars Westcott and Hort in the middle of the 19th century decided to revise the King James They made 20,000 changes, and 5,000 of them made it into the RSV, which included removing references to the name of Christ in certain passages and references to the blood, along with diluting terms in the Bible that they wanted to replace. But if you want the full 20,000 changes that they uh, wanted to implement, Get a Jehovah's Witness Bible. It has all 20,000 of them. So at that point, I decided to do a Spanish Bible translation. And at first, I'm afraid, you know, some people, maybe even including my wife, thought I was crazy. And I didn't feel like I was the most qualified person, but I did feel an anointing to do it, and so after I'd put our girls to bed, I would work on the Bible, and I started on what I felt was the most messed up part of it, in terms of those translations, which was the part, the prophetic part of the Old Testament, and after two years of work, my my wife gets up early, And so sometimes I was going to bed about the time she was getting up. After working all night on the Bible translation, it would seem like it was just a few minutes. And I began to see that the the 1569 translation was a jewel. The guy who did it had learned Hebrew from the Jews while they were still speaking Hebrew in Spain, before the Inquisition uh, made it impossible to speak Hebrew and killed or, or caused most of the Jews to flee. And so this guy was a Catholic priest. He had a monastery, and he started an underground railroad trying to help Jews flee the Inquisition. And he had a relic chained to a post in his monastery that they kissed and worshipped. It was a Hebrew text of the Old Testament, and nobody knew how to read it. 
But he had all these Jews coming through, and some of them major scholars. And so he learned Hebrew and began to work on translating it into Spanish. And when the Inquisition found out about it, he had to flee. So he went to Geneva. John Calvin was in power in Geneva. And his, one of his disciples, Cipriano de Valera, went with him. And they got to Geneva just in time to witness Miguel Servet being burned at the stake because he had a different view of the Trinity than what was accepted by John Calvin. The defenders of John Calvin have called me on the carpet and said, but John Calvin asked for his sentence to be reduced. Yes, he did. He asked, instead of burning at the stake, he asked for them to simply decapitate Miguel Servet. But his request was refused, and they burned him at the stake anyway. So, Casiota de Reina had some words with John Calvin, almost got burned at the stake himself, and had to flee Geneva. And his disciple, Cipriano de Valera, stayed behind. And Casiodoro de Reina went to England. And the Queen of England gave him a church so that he could preach in Spanish. And so he was preaching in Spanish, and nobody knew what he was saying. And he was still working on this Bible translation. And that proceeded for a while until the Inquisition found out about it. And the queen was loyal to the Catholics. And they trumped up false charges on him. And he had to flee England for his life. And he went to Germany. And he got in with the Lutherans. Just in time to witness the wars where if... Your prince was Lutheran, you had to fight on behalf of the Lutherans. And if your prince was Catholic, you had to fight on behalf of the Catholics. And so Cassiota had some words with them and almost got killed by the Lutherans and had to flee to Amsterdam. And so They gave him a place to preach in the Covenant Church in Amsterdam. And the minutes of the consistory are still there. And they still had trouble with Casiodoro de Reina because he would not agree to any given school of doctrine. He insisted on being free to preach as led by the Holy Spirit. And so they tolerated him. But when his Bible translation was done and ready to be published, they said, I mean, you had to get the imprimatur of the town authorities. Couldn't just publish something in those days. And they said, there's charges pending against you in England. You're a fugitive of justice. We can't allow your work to be published here in Amsterdam. 
So he left his wife. By now he had a wife and nine kids. I think he ended up in in, uh, in total. He's last heard of at about age 70 with 14 kids. But he went to England, stood trial, was exonerated, went back to Amsterdam with a clean bill of health, and printed the Bible. And the history of this Bible was, first of all, Francisco de Encinas, who was a confessor to the Pope at the time, did the New Testament and felt that if that New Testament could be brought to the palace, to the king of Spain, and that if the king of Spain would authorize that, Spain would be changed by the gospel. He made it into the palace. He made it to the king. He gave the king a copy. And on the way out of the palace, the Inquisition got him and put him in prison for many years. And the only way it was discovered what dungeon he was in was because he was singing and somebody recognized his voice and what he was singing. And then eventually different powers moved to try and get him out of prison, but he was, his health was spent. Juan Pina, the wealthy man, translated the Psalms and added them. And he again was persecuted, but he laid up his personal fortune towards the printing of the gospel. And that money was made available to Casiodo de Reina, and they printed 3,000 copies. This was called La Biblia del Oso, the Bible of the Bear, because on the cover and inside, there is a picture of a tree with honey, and there's bees bringing in the honey, which symbolizes the word. But there's a big old bear trying to trying to get the honey, symbolizing the Inquisition, and a great big hammer over his head, symbolizing that God was eventually going to bring judgment on this. It's the most accurate translation of the Hebrew of the Reformation, and it was almost lost. No one knows if the Inquisition got him in the end. Some say yes, some say no. The Catholic Church has gone to great lengths to try and claim innocence in our day. In 1602, Cipriano de Valera, who stayed in Geneva and became a close disciple of Calvin and became more Calvinist than Calvin, revised the Bible, and he's the one that went after free will and basically killed evangelism for a long time or helped kill it. Because if everything has been determined in advance before the foundation of the world, who's in and who's out, why would we need evangelism? If everything was determined in advance before the foundation of the world, It wouldn't do any good what any of us do. And where would the fear of the Lord be? Which is the beginning of wisdom. So I had to go back 
1569. And it was like reading a different language because everything is in a different order. And uh, the, the written Spanish wasn't consolidated like today. And the alphabet was different, different letters for different sounds. And sort this out from the beginning. And take a look at the work of Francisco de Encinas and Juan Pineda and Cipriano de Valera, who actually did do some good things, like he published all the margin notes of Casiora de Reina that weren't allowed to be published in the first edition. And that Bible was called La Biblia del Cántaro. Cántaro means the pitcher. And the idea was some, when Paul was mentioning the ministry of Apollos, remember he said some plant and others water, and God gives the increase. Well, then it went from there to the age of Romanticism and on and on and on and on until we got this impronounceable 1909 edition. And then the 1960, where it began to be mutilated. And ended up where the Bible Society wouldn't even print the NIV, which is another step after the RSV. They just wanted to print this one done by the homosexual Catholic priest, where They had anything that brought conviction by the Holy Spirit got fixed. So it took 10 years. And I had a problem. If I got a Spanish translation done, how was I going to get it funded? Because there wasn't going to be any funding in Colombia for something like this. So I started to run a copy in English on my computer. And in English, we went back. Instead of revising the King James forward, we revised it backwards in time to the English of William Tyndale, which is 100 years older English, but it's the common English, his New Testament, published in 1534, was called the Plowboy Edition because the bishop didn't want the Bible translated and William Tyndale said, sir, if God grants me the grace, I'm going to make it so that a common plowboy in England will know more of the scriptures than you, with all due respect. And as William Tyndale put together his translation and he, he made it through the entire Bible, he had to flee for his life. He had to operate across the English Channel. He had a shipwreck, and he lost half of the Old Testament. He lost the part from Psalms to Malachi in the shipwreck, and only one book survived. The book of Jonah survived the shipwreck. And so for William Tyndale, we have Genesis through the end of 2 Chronicles, Jonah, and the New Testament. 
And later on, when they did the King James, 90% of the wording of the King James in those books is William Tyndale. But someone else had to redo the prophetic books. And then they had committees go over this, and each committee had a different criteria for translating. Not necessarily um, in error, simply different vocabulary. So in the King James Bible, for a given Greek or Hebrew word, sometimes as many as 13 different English synonyms are used. So this is what makes us dependent in virtually all of our, King, all of our English Bibles. We're dependent on having a concordance and a Bible dictionary in order to sort it out. Key terms like sin, iniquity, rebellion. It's like they put all the instances in a hat and just did a drawing. Each time they got it, it's just randomly assorted. And all kinds of other things. But they were doing their best to get a good translation. It's just when you do something by committee, it isn't the same as if you do it by one person who can be consistent. And it didn't make as much difference in the past because the King James has the message plenty clear. The part that got slightly fuzzy is the prophetic part because when they added those prophetic books that William Tyndale lost in a shipwreck, the terminology isn't consistent. And then those are the parts of the Old Testament that most got quoted by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament. And if you don't make the right match between the right Hebrew word or the right Greek word, then it isn't consistent all the way through. And so when we used Casiodo de Reina's translation as a base, and William Tyndale's simpler English, which solves many of the problems that, that uh, young people have with not wanting to use the King James Bible without sacrificing any accuracy. In fact, it actually becomes more accurate as it becomes consistent. It, the Bible defines itself. Almost all of our English Bibles miss the first instance of a given Greek or Hebrew word in the Scriptures because there's a synonym there instead of the word itself. If you can get the first instance and get all of them and match it with the right Greek word and go all the way through to the last instance, which is missing in most English translations too because it's another synonym, and see where this begins and how it develops and where it ends... The Bible defines itself as you study that verse list and you don't have to take somebody else's word for it. You don't have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar. You can tell how God's using it in a given context. And the Holy Spirit can reveal directly to you what God means by righteousness or by judgment or by perfection or by so many other things in the Scriptures. Let me just give you a little example of where several key words start. They start here in Genesis, but many of the key words actually start in the book of Job. 
Did you know that the book of Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible? It was probably written first. Probably written more than 100 years, maybe even more than 150 years before the books of Moses. That's another story. But if we listen to our modern scholars, they think Job lived off in Persia someplace and had nothing to do with the Hebrews. But Job is the first example of perfectly written Hebrew. And the oldest. One of the oldest books in the world, maybe the oldest. And according to the scriptures, Job is the fifth son of Issachar, the son of Jacob. According to the scriptures, Job lived in a land just about synonymous with the description in the book of Exodus of the land of Goshen, where Pharaoh put Joseph's brothers and family. Job was Joseph's nephew. And it appears that with Joseph reigning in Egypt, that is when written Hebrew was developed. Eliphaz was a son of Esau. And on and on, we, the Bible pegs all of these characters. It's just been swept under the rug. And a lot of key terminology is introduced in the book of Job. No one knew, not Job, not Job's comforters, not Job's wife, no one knew about the conversation between God and Satan. No one knew that God risked his reputation in front of all of those around the throne in the heavens, including Satan. And that it would have been disastrous for God if Job would have turned on God. Makes me wonder, is there, has there been any other deals like that going on in heaven? How come this whole world has been allowed to go on for so many thousands of years? What's going on? How come the demons, when Jesus was casting out demons during his ministry, and demons said to him, have you come to mess with us before the time? What time? What are we talking about? The scripture said that the angels are closely looking into what God is doing with us. There are things at stake that we are not fully aware of right now. If we look at closely at the book of Job, Job's comforters 
had learned a certain religious philosophy that had been passed down by word of mouth from, by the patriarchs. Some of them would have been alive, or some of these patriarchs, such as Noah and Shem, would have still been alive during the lifetime of men like Abraham and Isaac and even Jacob and Esau. The wisdom of the ancient patriarchs was known as the rocks. And if you look at the book of Job and study where the word rocks comes and how it develops in Scripture, but you have to get a translation where rocks is always the same all the way through, like the Jubilee Bible. It is a very interesting concept. And you remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, towards the end of the chapter, when the heavens are rolled up like a scroll, and Jesus said that before, the last real sign before his coming is the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And that's when we're to look up because our redemption draws nine. And because the next thing that happens is we'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, is that about the same as the heavens getting rolled up like a scroll? Kind of close. And when that happens, all the dwellers of the earth, rich, poor, captains, slaves, everybody, they're going to run and call on the rocks to cover them. Now, there's been lots of arguments over the centuries of whether the book of Revelation should be interpreted literally or figuratively or spiritually or historically or future or how. What about just letting the Holy Spirit interpret it for us however God wants on as many levels as he wants to? Whether he wants to apply something to us personally or whether he wants to apply something over history or if he wants to use it to help us get ready for what we know is coming in the future. In fact, I kind of think, even though there's all these things, and it's, it's been a blessing to anyone that reads it or anyone that listens, hears it being read since it was written, there's a special blessing. I think on the day of the Lord, it kind of recycles. Maybe goes all the way through. On the day of the Lord... When Jesus, not, and, and if we look closely at it, not only is Jesus going to be revealed from heaven, but God the Father, who no one has ever seen, is going to be revealed from heaven. And when that happens, anyone who's on the earth that isn't clean is not going to be able to tolerate his presence. It's like what would happen if you had the tabernacle. Remember it had an outer court, then went through the first curtain, and then the holy place where you had to be born into the priesthood in order to get in there. And now we're, of course, in the born-again priesthood of all the believers. But there was a, still another veil between there and the Holy of Holies, which represent the direct presence of God. Why was the veil there? It was in case the priests were unclean, so that they would not be destroyed by the glory of God. It was there to protect their lives. And the high priest could go in once a year, but with blood 
and he had to do everything perfectly or his life would be in danger. In fact, Jewish tradition says that when he would go in that once every year, they would tie a rope to his leg in case he died so, so that they could get him back out of there, so that they could pull the body back out. Serious business going into the Holy of Holies. Well, what if you had a whole bunch of priests, or in our case, born-again believers, and the veil gets pulled, like when the heavens get rolled up like a scroll? What's going to happen to anyone that doesn't have a clean heart? They're either going to get destroyed, or they're going to have to flee and go back into the sea of lost humanity. They're not going to be able to remain in the realm of the religious earth. So our theologians have figured out, they got to figure out a way to get out of this situation because when God's revealed from heaven, everybody's going to be in trouble on the earth. So they figured out a secret rapture doctrine. And you don't have to be victorious. You don't have to have a clean heart. You just have to jump through their hoops. And God's going to helicopter you off the battlefield and take you somewhere. And you're going to be there for three and a half years, or some say seven years. And now the latest theologians in Dallas Theological Seminary say 70 years because intellectually, to be honest, they can't fit all of the warnings of the Scripture into three and a half years or seven years. So they have to expand it now to 70 years. And the great tribulation is going to happen to some poor Jews over in Israel that never prayed the sinner's prayer. So, what does that do to the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom? So, The rocks, which have now become the modern doctrines, the rocks of the doctrines that Job's comforters tried to apply to Job. Look, Job, I mean, all your kids are killed. They must, there must have been something the matter, and you, you must be the cause of it. And you wouldn't have lost all your possessions, and you wouldn't have lost your health, and you wouldn't be sitting here in dust and ashes in your present condition if you were upright. And they went on and on and on. For about 32, 38 chapters or so. And it's an interesting study. The title of the commentary that I did on Job is called Job and the Place of Understanding. Where is the place of understanding? Job said it was a very difficult place to find. But he finally found it. He found it in the presence of God. The place of understanding is wherever we have to go to flee sin and corruption. 
And there's only one place. There's only one safe place. And that's in Christ. There's only one source of good. There's only one source of blessing. There's only one place where good ground can be found, where the seed will multiply and produce 30, 60, and 100 fold. And that is in the life of Christ. That's the only place we have here now where there is no curse. So as I was working on this Bible translation, oh, and I just say, these, these doctrines that give false security, they're the modern rocks that these people are going to try and hide under. These are the caves where they're going to try and go. Isaiah said, their covenant with death, with Sheol, is not going to stand. He said, the hail is going to sweep away the refuge of lies. And the whirlwind is going to take them away. In Scripture, whirlwind always has to do with the judgment of God. But guess what happens when we're clean and in a right relationship with God? What happened to Elijah? He did not go up to heaven in a fiery chariot. That's not according to Scripture. A fiery chariot separated him from Elisha, and he went up to heaven in a whirlwind. In other words, the judgment of God took Elijah into a higher realm. But the scripture says, beginning in the book of Job, that the whirlwind is going to have the opposite effect on the wicked. And remember, there's only one source of good. The rocks of human philosophy and theology are not going to deliver anyone. And they're not going to provide a cover for anybody. Isaiah says, woe to those who are covered by a covering that's not by my spirit, saith the Lord. The true covering... Protection has to be by the Holy Spirit, or we're not covered. So, I was working on this translation, and everywhere I found where they had twisted something, and when we got it straightened out, I felt a tremendous joy in the Spirit. And I would work on a verse. Sometimes there would be 10 or 12, an average of 10 or 12 minute changes per verse. Uh, maybe a preposition was off. Maybe an article was lacking. Maybe a verb tense had been uh, um, twisted. Maybe uh, it was supposed to be plural and was singular. Maybe a word had been added and wasn't put in italics like it's supposed to be. Or maybe there was something missing that should have been there and wasn't there. I spent about six months between Exodus chapter 20 and Leviticus chapter 7 
and, and, and could not make progress. There was something wrong. I couldn't, couldn't find it. And I checked everything and finally came to the conclusion there were some things supposed to be in there that weren't there. And there were some things that had been horribly garbled. For instance, Exodus chapter, Leviticus chapter 7 speaks of three types of sacrifice. The first has to do with sin. And so it mentions in most of our Bibles, in English, Spanish, languages all, the sin, a sin offering. Except for that's not what the Hebrew says. It doesn't say sin offering. It says, offer your sin. God isn't interested in something instead of your sin. He wants your sin on the altar. He wants the hog diet, even though it's got horns and hoofs, can gore you, can kick you, and you're going to need help from the high priest. And we have our new high priest, which is Jesus, and he's the only mediator of the new covenant. And if we don't level with him about our sin... And bring that sin into the light and let him help us or whoever he delegates that he wants to help us and get that whole mess tied up, get its throat slit, get it bled to death, get the whole mess put onto the fire of God and cleanse all the inward parts with fire. God's not interested in us offering something instead of our sin. And we keep on sinning and we keep giving him something instead of our sin. That's how the religion of man operates. It doesn't provide victory. Those who say we have to sin in word, thought, deed, and by mission every day because of our human condition, we can't help it. And even if you think you made it through the day without sinning in word, thought, or deed, there's always something wonderful you could have done that you didn't do, and so they've got you because you've sinned by omission, and you can never have victory according to them. And then because of the guilt, you keep coming back to their religious hoops and going to their endless meetings. And then if they're good at it, they'll really turn up the screws on you over the guilt and they'll get your money too. And in some places, they'll tell you you need to turn in your jewelry, your ring, your watch, your TV, whatever else they can get. Well, the second sacrifice in Leviticus 7 was called the guilt offering. Guilt and shame are similar, except for it doesn't say guilt offering. It says, offer your guilt. And it's just important to get the guilt killed and done away with as it is to get the sin killed. Because God doesn't want either one of them to be able to raise their ugly heads again in our lives. The guilt is represented by a he-goat. And it can really let you have it. Have you ever turned your back on a he-goat? You can have a rude awakening.
The scripture says that Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The reconciliation and atonement that Jesus provided for us is closely linked to the cross, to the blood, and to his physical death. That's what sets the stage for the resurrection. The, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, the scripture says. And also the scripture says, in Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 17 or 19, that the life of the flesh is in the blood. So Jesus came to reconcile us with the Father. To bring us back into right fellowship with God the Father because the whole human race, in fact the whole natural world, has been divorced from heaven and estranged from the presence of God. And we can't get back on our own. Our only way back is in the life of Christ. So look what happens when these rocks take over. So they're going to present us the gospel. And they say, salvation is a free gift. And then they put a hypothetical. When is the free gift yours? The proved answer, when you receive it. Well, now we're talking about an impersonal it, when we ought to be talking about an all-powerful him. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. He who has the Son has life. And all of the scriptures having to do with our salvation are linked to him. God the Father has life in himself. He's given to the Son to have life in himself, but our life is in the Son. I was going to tell you where some of these key words start. Genesis 6. But I just wanted to make the point that a lot of them start in Job. And a lot of these word patterns end in Revelation. A lot of stuff converges into Revelation. But anyway, Genesis six fourteen. Make thee an ark of cedar trees. Room shall thou make in the ark and shalt reconcile it within and without, covering it over with pitch. And that last word pitch in the Jubilee Bible is footnoted. Most Bibles read, Thou shalt make an ark and shalt pitch it within and without, covering it over with pitch. That first word for pitch there is the word reconcile. It's the beginning of the word reconcile in the scripture, the root of the word reconciliation which is the key for us to coming back into fellowship with God. The second word pitch here is the word ransom or atonement. And this is the beginning of both of those patterns, and all of our English Bibles miss it. They miss the first instant. 
And they missed the second one too. And many times they missed the last one. And a lot in between. There is a Hebrew word for pitch. Tar. And that's used in Exodus. Remember when Moses' mother made an ark to put baby Moses in and float him among the bulrushes. And when she pitched her ark, it uses the real word for pitch, which is used in the rest of... And it's a totally different word, not this... Either one of these two words. If you get an old Webster's Unabridged Dictionary, second edition, and look up the word reconcile, you will find at the end that there is an obsolete Old English meaning that it's a shipbuilding term, and it means to line everything out straight, all the planks lined up straight, with the keel, that's reconciling it. It's particularly among the curves of the ship so that the water won't come in and sink the boat. And so if the ark is a symbol of God's plan of salvation, if God wants to bring us into his plan of salvation as part of it, he is straight, and we have to be lined up straight with him if this whole thing is going to seal and if we're going to make it through the judgment that's coming. And it has to be sealed within and without. In other words, God has to deal with us on the inside and we have to be covered with his righteousness on the outside if we're going to be able to go through the judgment intact. And this is the beginning of the pattern of the word reconcile and the beginning of the word ransom. And I don't have time to go through all of it, but I'll just tell you where reconcile ends. It ends when Paul says that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation in Christ. In other words, the ministry or the service that God wants to bring us into is that of helping him line up other people straight with God. Reconciliation isn't God gives a little and we give a little and we kind of meet in the middle. You know, we we, we agree to give up the mortal sins and we get to keep the venial sins and, uh, and, and we just kind of find a happy medium. No, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the only way for us to be lined up back straight with God is in the life of Jesus Christ. And in order for that to happen, we have to be willing to put our life on the altar. Salvation is a free gift, but the free gift is Jesus. It's not something he did for us that can be separated from him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The gift is Jesus. The giver is the father. And if we're going to receive the free gift, it's Jesus. But he's the Lord of the universe. 
We can't come and be a carnal Christian and then at some future optional point decide to make him the Lord. He already is the Lord. We can accept him or we can reject him, but he is the Lord. So anyway, we've had a lot of fun going through this Bible. Back to Leviticus 7, the third sacrifice. The first two sacrifices are obligatory. If you want to be part of the people of God, you have to deal with sin. Rather, let God deal with your sin, be willing to offer it. And guilt has to be dealt with, because unless guilt and shame are dealt with and killed on the altar of God, unless the life is bled out of them, unless the fire of God destroys all of the evidence, that guilt will come back to haunt us. Whatever it is that we did in the past, the enemy will keep throwing it in our face and saying we're not worthy to represent God. We're not worthy to have a viable ministry. We're not worthy to help line other people up straight with God. And if you put the shoe on the other foot, someone who wants to use guilt against someone else, they don't want to forgive and they want to keep holding that in someone else's face. Like they don't want to forgive their spouse. They always want to keep that weapon or they don't want to forgive their children, or they don't want to forgive their parents, because it's a weapon. And we have to be disarmed of that weapon if we're going to prosper in Christ. That weapon of guilt and shame has to be destroyed. It is absolutely obligatory, and there's the same amount of, of emphasis in the, in the Bible on offering the guilt and bringing it to an end on the altar of God as there is to bring in an end to sin. And another thing about the law in ancient Israel is that sin could be on an individual level. An individual could sin, and it had to be dealt with. Or an individual could have a problem with guilt, and it had to be dealt with. But a family could have it too. The whole family could have to deal with something. The whole tribe could have a problem. And it could have to be dealt with as a tribe. The nation, the entire nation could have sinned. And it had to be dealt with as a nation. And so many places today are still preaching repentance, individual repentance. But our corporate groups among the congregations and churches particularly well, all around the world, but particularly in North America, there isn't much in the line of corporate repentance. And it's extremely important. And corporately, you know, whole groups of people are refusing to forgive. All kinds of people are blaming others for their past. We've got a whole society full of groups that are after each other's throats. 
whether they're ethnic or political or whatever. And Jesus said, a nation divided among itself cannot stand. He was referring to Satan's kingdom, but Satan happens to run all the kingdoms of this world. And none of them get along with one another or internally. His people are always at each other's throats. And that's not supposed to be true of the people of God. The Holy Spirit, the Comforter, is linked to power, purity, and unity, among other things. The real Holy Spirit should bring God's people together, not split them apart. The definition of a heretic in the original language, is someone who causes division. Not necessarily linked to false doctrine. Simply causing division is being a heretic. And Paul says they're to be warned once or twice, but then they're to be confronted. Some do it and don't realize what they're doing, need to, need to be brought to order. But people that keep on causing division, unnecessary division, and make a practice or a sport out of it, or are doing it for some ulterior motive, need to be confronted. And there's a place for public confrontation for those who are causing trouble like this in public. And all of us as leaders, we have to make difficult calls. And it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and say we should have done something different. I get criticized all the time for trusting people that later caused trouble or turned on me or did something awful. But you know something? God gives lots of opportunities to people that don't measure up. In fact, you'll never find out if they're going to measure up. None of us will find out how we're going to measure up unless we're given an opportunity. And God says if we're faithful with little, he'll give us more. And I've given opportunities to people who um, cause trouble. And I've been severely criticized. But even though I want to minimize that and learn, I don't want to be found not giving an opportunity where God really wants that opportunity given. I don't want to be found rejecting someone who God wants to bring into our fellowship. I don't want to be found rejecting someone in ministry that God sent. But we don't want to let a wolf in either. And someone, anytime people are being congregated in the name of the Lord, the Lord's going to hold someone accountable and responsible for the well-being 
So remember this, friends. It's easy to second guess. It's easy to look in the rearview mirror. Over the last few years, we had three cases that were pretty bad. But they looked really good, and they actually offered some things, and, and there were actually some, some things gained to them. But you want to know what the first indication was that some, something was wrong? None of us noticed. But my son Dylan had a 150-pound Alaskan Malamute. And that dog did not like those three individuals. And he was perfectly fine with everybody else. But whenever he saw one of those three, his fur would come up. He wouldn't bark, but he just made a low rumble. Kind of like a subwoofer, just going. That inspired absolute terror in those people. But somehow the dog knew they weren't trustworthy. Even though they were extremely gifted people. That's the first indication that I had. I wonder why the dog doesn't like these people. The dog had something we didn't have. Dogs tend to take on a little bit of the personality of their owners, especially if they bond young. But that was a really good dog. We had to put him to sleep last year because he had a lot of joint trouble and a lot of pain. But he, he, that was a dog that was, I think, worth having. My wife wouldn't let him on the second floor. We were in an apartment in Bogota, so we had to have him in the ground floor of the apartment. She wouldn't let him go up the stairs. But when nobody else was in the house, he would howl, as only a Malamute can. And the only way she could get him to stop howling was let him up the stairs into the bedroom, and then he'd curl up at the foot of the bed. So he knew how to... He was a smart dog. But Jesus... Wants us to imprint on him. And we get that by being close to him. The closer we are to the Lord in our relationship with him, the less possibility of us being fooled by the enemy. And the only one who won't be deceived is Jesus. The enemy is capable of deceiving everyone in this world. Everyone. And if we escape being deceived, it'll only be because we're relying totally on the Lord. And that we're close to the Lord Jesus and we're close to God the Father 
and we're in constant fellowship with them by the Holy Spirit. That's the only way to not be deceived. So I'm going to go back to Leviticus 7. Remember, offer your sin, offer your guilt, cooperate, help God deal with it. If you're off by yourself and you've got some kind of a compelling sin and and it won't break, it'll probably never break unless you get it into the light. Those who would try and struggle with something and they can't get it, if you don't bring it into, there are things you don't have to stand up and confess in front of the congregation or the world. But if you don't deal with it, it may eventually be revealed and everybody will find out. But you've got to take someone into your confidence. And you've got to get it out in the open. That's why it says, confess your sins one to another. Because if we confess our sins, he will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to make sure that we get cleansed. And we need to make sure that the guilt is not going to hamstring us afterwards. And when sin and guilt have been dealt with, there is a third sacrifice. And that one is voluntary. And that voluntary sacrifice is called the peace offering. And that's when we, without sin or guilt, having that dealt with, offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And that can be done on a daily basis, according to Romans chapter 12. The peace offering is the same as the name Solomon. Solomon means peace offering. And Solomon struggled his entire life. God gave him tremendous wisdom. But he made the mistake of trying to use it apart from God. He was content with what God gave him. But if you go through the Psalms of David, David's number one thing that he was asking God for was not wisdom. David's number one thing that he asked God for was mercy. And when he needed mercy, God gave him mercy. And when David said to God, I'm going to build you a house. And then God sent word later, "Mm mm-mm. I'm going to turn this around. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a sure house. I'm going to keep my hand on all of your descendants all the way through to Jesus Christ. And the scripture says that the sure mercies of David are linked to hearing his voice on a continual basis. So, friends, there is a place of security. It's the place of hearing his voice and allowing him to deal with our hearts. It's the place of being found in God's mercy 
Mercy is when God does not give us what we deserve. And mercy in the scripture is always paired, or almost always paired, with truth. Go through the Psalms and see how many times truth and mercy are together. And in order for God to fully have mercy on us, he has to line us up with his truth. He's not going to pretend that we're okay when we're not okay. And it's as he reveals the truth, the truth about him, himself, the truth about us, that he can bring us into the realm of mercy and grace. Mercy and grace are both represented by the number five in Scripture. But you have to be careful with these numbers because they can turn negative, and five can also represent those who reject God's mercy and grace. So there's no more magic formula where you can start fooling around with the numbers. It requires the presence of the Holy Spirit. The peace offering. Solomon didn't understand about the peace offering. I don't think he understood about the peace offering until towards the end of his life, after being devastated, after being badly messed up, not only after pagan women, but after their pagan gods that were abominations. But it appears that he came back around because when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, it's clear that he understood what the peace offering was. And he understood that the sole purpose of God was not all these things that he had obtained. More wealth than anyone probably before or since. Tremendous wisdom. But not enough wisdom to have taken his father David's advice when his father said, Young man, above all else, guard your heart. And his heart went in the wrong direction, and it was terribly painful. But in the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he sums it up. The sole purpose of man is to please God. And it's simple, friends. Many times the fruit of the Holy Spirit begins with supernatural joy and supernatural love of God flowing. Put it in a nutshell. If we live to please God, if our consciences are clean before God, we can know by the Spirit when He's happy. And we can know by the Spirit when he's not happy with what we're doing. And sometimes it's something we did that he doesn't like, and sometimes it's something we failed to do that he wanted us to do, and we missed. But if you want to put it simple, all we have to do is live to keep him happy. If we live to keep him happy and make sure he's always pleased, we will find ourselves in the center of his will. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this message might sink in, that each and every one of us might reflect on the status of our conscience, of our hearts, and be truthful. to acknowledge whether or not you're truly happy with us, with the way we've been living, with the way we've been conducting ourselves. Or if some adjustments need to be made. And we ask that as you line us up with your truth, that we might also experience your mercy and your grace. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.